us so much. God, we stand in awe tonight of your love. And, and we just, as, just as this room just filled with high school students and leaders, God, we just declare and, and we just love the fact that you love us. God, that we would be in a world of hurt. God, we would be helpless and hopeless without your love. And God, we just say tonight as this room full of people, oh, how you love us. Oh, how your grace is enough for us. Oh, how your mercy is so precious in our lives, God. We are so thankful for your love. We're so thankful for your grace. We are so thankful for your son sent as a sacrifice for us, for our mistakes that we've made, God, for all the sin that, that entangles us as followers of Christ, God. Oh, how you love us. Oh, how your grace covers all of our sin. God, we delight in that tonight. And it's in your precious, powerful, mighty name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. Well, welcome. Uh, if, if you're new, if you're checking us out this semester, my name is Mike. Um, I showed up a couple years ago and just started hanging out with high school students, and I just kind of get to stay. Nobody's asked me to leave yet, and so I just keep showing up every Sunday night. It's ridiculous that I get paid to do what I do, and this is David Marvin. Everybody say hello uh, to David. He is our intern this year, and, uh, and we, uh, as we were sitting around getting ready for this series. This is a series uh, that was put together back in April, believe it or not. Some of us were together and we were thinking through every single one of you, okay? So specifically for you freshman girl or for you senior guy, what is it that you struggle with and how, how much can we help you in the midst of your struggles and, and specifically for every single one of you in your own life, how can we put together a, a four-week series that we think could help you so much? And, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story that happens in the book of Luke. And not only tonight are we going to look at just this one story in Luke chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over there. But we are going to look at everything that happens in the entire chapter of Luke 15. And, we're, and David and I are going to team teach tonight. We're going to go back and forth and we're going to have some fun with this chapter of Scripture to highlight everything that happens so you can understand what happens at the end of Luke chapter 15. You've got to hear everything that happens starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. And so we want to invite you tonight to go on a journey uh, with us, we want to invite you to invite God to completely change your understanding of how you relate to your Heavenly Father. This is going to be an incredible four-week series that I think could dramatically, students, don't miss this, I think this could dramatically change your relationship with God if you soak all of this in. And so you really don't uh, want to miss out on any of these upcoming weeks. Now, let me just make a quick announcement. Um, next Sunday, we are actually not going to meet because we're having the Watermark 10-year anniversary. 
And so uh, if you can be here next Sunday at three o'clock, we're going to have carnies here serving corn dogs. Uh, there's going to be bounce houses. There's going to be uh, some country dancing, and you definitely don't want to miss that. I'll have my boots on. Uh, and so you don't want to miss next Sunday at 3 o'clock. It's going to go until 7, and, uh, and we just thought it would be better for you guys to come to this 10-year uh, celebration and bash and just a great way uh, to laugh and celebrate what God has done at Watermark over the, next, over the last 10 years. And so uh, we're going to pick this series up the following Sunday. And, uh, and so that's kind of how we're going to do this. So tonight uh, we start in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Listen to this. This is, this is uh, like the perfect setup for a movie, okay? This is how it goes down in verse 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners... We're coming near, and I want you to note just a, a key word there. It says, now all the tax collectors, okay, and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him talking about Jesus. And it says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What Jesus has done, you know, is, is of epic proportions, okay? What he's done to get all the sinners all the sinners and all the tax collectors and the religious people in the same room is genius. You see, when you read the Gospels and you read the book of Matthew and Mark and then you come to Luke, you understand that Jesus is an absolute master teacher. And in verse 1, when you see that he's got all the tax collectors, that's all the sinners, that would be like Jesus showing up here and you have prostitutes from downtown and you've got people that are hooked on all kinds of crazy drugs and you've got people that, gosh, you, you would, you've heard things about them and you're like, man, I can't believe they would do that. And then you've got the religious people like, oh my gosh, I'm high and mighty, I'm holier than thou. And Jesus somehow got everybody in the same room. That'd be a little crazy, wouldn't it? That'd be an interesting Bible study, right? You wouldn't know what might happen. And so I would invite you, if you would put yourself in that category, man, I feel like a tax collector and sinner, like this may be my first or second time. I would invite you to keep coming back because everybody gets to have a place at this table. Everybody gets to sit and hear Jesus talk. Everybody's invited to find their place in their relationship with Christ. And that's how Luke 15 starts. And that's how I love the fact that Jesus starts in my life is that he says, I don't care where you're at on the spectrum. I don't care if you're a sinner and you don't even care about what you're doing, or I don't care if you're trying to justify everything you're doing and you're the religious and you judge people, all of you, whatever spectrum, whatever end of the spectrum you're on, have a place at the table. That's the Jesus that we worship, and that's how Luke chapter 15 starts. And as we continue this series, I would tell you to invite all the religious people you know and all the sinners you know, because this series is going to change hearts. I'm convinced of it. If you allow the Lord to speak to you, Jesus is going to change hearts. That's what he's in the business of doing. Listen to what happens in verse 3. Check, 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 check. When I, uh, I didn't grow up following the Lord. And so when I uh, was 19, uh, really what, what I tell people when they ask me about um, how that all came about is um, I encountered a, a different God than I'd ever encountered before. And so um, 
really it was through that exposure to just some really godly guys that I was um, faced with not so much the God or the church or Christianity that I thought I knew so well, um, but the God of the scriptures. And so early on, one of the most compelling shaping things for me in my walk um, was Jesus' teachings. And as I went back over, um, and I was, I was so just uh, bewildered as I would continually interact with things that I was like, why was I not taught this? How did I never hear this? And in a lot of ways, I feel like what Mike talked about with the sinners and tax collectors, and, and just to add on that, that that's kind of what was taking place. Is sinners in the first century, if you say it was a history major, like I've told you before, but sinners in the first century, what that was, it was a, it was a class of people or a caste. And so everyone who was in uh, sinners, uh, the Jewish teaching of the time was that if you are um, crippled, if you are disabled, if you have some sort of disease or something that would um, render you physically uh, ail, God is angry at you. And because of his judgment on you, you are a sinner and you are an outcast of society. And, and same thing with tax collectors. If you study Rome, Rome is my, my favorite subject in history. And if you study Rome, uh, they were uh, uh, incredibly oppressive, incredibly brutal rulers. And tax collectors were Jewish men who had bought the right to tax their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters to fund an army that was slaughtering and killing their own men and women. And so Jewish teaching at the time was repulsive to them because Jewish teaching would say that you are a sinner and there is a day coming where you will burn. And so they had no place for it. Jewish teaching also taught that, that uh, the way that you earned favor or holiness in the eyes of God was by what you did. And so it is a, an incredibly unique thing that these sinners and tax collectors who have no care for Jewish teaching are all of a sudden pressing near to hear what this man has to say. And he tells this parable. I, I have a different version, so I'm just gonna read it off here. And he told him this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And so to a crowd full of people who either think that they are right in the eyes of God based on what they have done, judging those based on who have gone astray, and a crowd who has never heard teaching that is not consistent with the fact that God is, if he exists, angry at you. Christ completely obliterates this and says, it, it is not like we have the 99 and we don't care about the one. You are all like sheep and anyone, all these tax collectors, sinners, anyone who has wandered off is like a sheep who has gone astray out from underneath the shepherd's provision, care and love. And like a shepherd that goes and he finds and he leaves the 99 because he is not satisfied with having one wandering lost. He lovingly goes, and when he finds it, he doesn't uh, punish it. He doesn't abuse it. He doesn't, you know, barbecue it up or take it back to whatever it is. He 
puts it on his shoulders and he carries it home. And he carries it back. And when he gets back, he calls his friends and rejoice. What was lost has been found. And so when he says, I tell you the truth, that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over all of your righteous deeds. And he says this to a crowd of men who have devoted their lives to following hundreds and hundreds of laws that in their thought process, they thought would please God. They devoted their lives to pleasing God. And he obliterates this and says, I tell you the truth. I, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one girl, over one prostitute who comes to know the saving grace of God than over a hundred, a thousand men or women who have abstained from that. I tell you the truth. And, and I, I still think it's incredibly prevalent in our culture that we don't have a mindset that, that this infiltrates into. I was, I was at lunch with a friend the other day and uh, we, gave me, we were just talking, uh, he works in another church in here and we were just catching up. And all of a sudden we're interrupted by this guy who comes by and uh, we're at Payway. And so we strike up a conversation with him and we begin to talk. And this is right when the Tiger Woods fiasco went down, uh, if you paid attention to the news. And, and basically what happened with Tiger is he got into some infidelity problems. Um, and what the remark of this man, um, adultery, adultery, uh, what the remark of this man was that, man, I can't, I can't believe that guy. I tell you what, after he just told me and my friend about his time at the church, his time that morning at church, and it is not the attitude of Christ that would say, I, my heart breaks for Tiger because he has been deceived into thinking that money, sex, anything else, that's my heart. I love this man and my heart will rejoice if he is to find grace. And, and I, I can't tell you how, how um, I love these three stories. My dad is an alcoholic and he's not a believer and he's been burned by the church. And it's because of teaching that doesn't rest on the idea that God loves those who have gone astray, the sheep who has wandered off and doesn't realize what it's left, the provision, protection, that God doesn't set up boundaries and rules and wrongs and do's and don'ts so that you would just follow some moral code and that one day you'll be in heaven, but he sets up rules that will lead you into life. Now the kingdom of heaven is upon you. And he refutes and overturns the teaching of the day and says, you think God is angry at these people? He's not angry at them. He loves them, and there is more joy in heaven over one of them who repents than over any of you who act righteously and don't think that righteousness is for all. But that's not it. He goes on to another parable. What I love about that is he starts... Uh, with that first parable, and, uh, and he, he goes after one, there's 99, there's, it's one out of 100, right? And then the next parable Jesus tells is one out of 10. Listen to this in verse 8. It says, Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, 
does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And what you need to know about this passage, because none of you lived 2,000 years ago, those 10 silver coins, that was like one day's worth of work. Okay, so she loses a tenth of her, of her wages for one day. That's a big deal back then because they ate to live. They didn't live to eat like we do. Uh, money was hard to come by, and so she loses a tenth of her income. And, and then what you also need to understand is if she loses something in her house, coins weren't made back then uh, like they are now. And so the longer that a coin sits the more that it loses its value, okay? The more that the, the face that's on it might get worn off. And the longer it sits, the, the longer you have the chance to, once you find it, you're not sure which kind of coin it is. And here's the truth about us and our relationship with God. The longer that we sit apart from God and the longer that we run away from God and the longer that we live lives that makes God sad. The longer we sit, the longer we waste away. The longer we waste our opportunity at having this vibrant, active, incredible, exciting, valuable relationship with Christ and we just sit there. I mean, think about it. If you lost a coin like in, in the crevice of your couch or your recliner or wherever you sit in your family room, what good is that quarter, right? I mean, what good is that coin sitting in the couch? It's of no value, right? And, and what God wants to do is, is be, he, his, his attitude towards us is, man, he is going to, at night, right? I mean, not just when it's convenient during the day. At night, he's going to turn the lamp on, and he is going to sweep through the house. He's going to carefully look because he cares for that one piece. Yeah, one in a hundred. I, okay, I understand. Ninety-nine, that's pretty good if you've still got ninety-nine. But now, now, she's, now there's just ten, right? And so, Ten, she's looking, he's, he's after one piece, he's looking for you and in the midst of your sin and in the midst of your shame and even in the midst, if you can't identify with somebody that's just completely abandoned their faith, if you consider yourself like, oh, I'm, I'm more of like the religious that, that I might tend to judge, he's, he's after every single one of us and he's looking to replace the worth and to remind you of how incredibly valuable you are in your relationship with God. He's after you. And then when he finds you, right, he's pursuing you, he rejoices. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which is lost. I think many of us find ourselves in a place with God in our relationship with God, where we're just sitting in the crevice of a piece of furniture, not using and not celebrating the value that God has put into us. Incredible part of Luke 15. Incredible. He goes from one in a hundred to one in ten. Now look what happens in verse 11. 
Jesus then goes on to the third parable. And he says, And he said, A man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And it wasn't many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. There he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. You know the next one. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields, to one of the citizens of that country, excuse me, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. Will you go back to the first slide? Uh, something Michael will talk on more next week, but, but uh, Jewish patriarchs divided their estate between their sons. Um, the first son received two-thirds of the inheritance. The second son received one-third of the inheritance. So what um, takes place is after the father passed away, the division is made and, and separated, and they kind of move to their separate ways. What takes place here um, really has no cultural or equivalent, excuse me, like transferring over. We really don't have any idea of what this means other than it would be like expressing to your father uh, you are as good as dead to me. I no longer want to live in this household under your provision. Give me what is mine, what you have made, what you created. I'm taking, and I will use it how I see fit. See that? What you have made, I'm taking, and I will squander it how I see fit. And so I, I think um, this is kind of the story of all who are lost, all who wander, all who have yet to come home to the Father, like we'll see in the next 10 verses. And so this is a story of all of us, that we say, I want what is not, what I did not make, and I will spend it and use it, my life, how I see fit. And so he goes. And he spends his life in reckless living. Later on in the last few verses of the chapter, it talks about how he uh, is using it, uh, squandered on prostitutes. And so he goes off in, in cheap motels, sleeps with foreign women. And because... Uh, I think the best way I would say it is, is whenever you walk away from the Father, you will squander whatever life has been given to you, and you will end up a slave. And you will end up a slave. The Greek word here for uh, when he hires himself out is attached him to, indentured servant. And so he wanders from the father and he ends up a slave. But the good thing is, is, is that um, in the next verses, we'll see uh, how he um, begins to loathe where he's at and he wants to go back home. And, and I think the one thing I would add on to that is I, a lot of times in, in Dallas, you interact with kids who have kind of grown up in the church and they've been um, in the church their whole life. And, and I'm, I've had this conversation um, multiple times. So I don't think that if... It's one where I'm talking about you. But, but what they'll say is they'll say, I wish that I would have had a time before 
where I was prodigal and I was running from God. Either for, for reasons of they just wanted to, to pursue that and see what it's like out of curiosity or the fact that they would savor more what they're knowing right now. And, and I think all of us on staff, your leaders, everyone would plead with you to learn from the spilt blood of those who went before you because not all of the prodigals come home. Not all of the prodigals come home. And so if you have grown up in the church and you have grown up like the older brother who we're about to see, remain in the Father's love. Learn and believe that when you wander from him, it always leads to slavery. And here it's normal starvation, but it's also the starvation of your soul. He loves you and he desires so much more for you. So much more. Pick up in verse 17. It says this, I love this. This is a turning point and this can be the turning point for us. It says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up. And I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now what's happening there, just so you know, is, is he is, I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever like rehearsed uh, what you're going to say to your parent if you got caught doing something? Basically, he's rehearsing his repentance. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. And, and I'm going to go to my father. And I'm going to say, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I'm going to make this really good because I've messed up big time. So he's rehearsing what he's going to say because he's come to his senses. And then watch this in the next verse. It says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran. See, this is the only time in the Bible that God runs. This is the only time in the entire Old and New Testament that you see God run. It says, he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And we're going to look at that little chunk for a couple of weeks. But when, one thing that I want you to see, okay, this is huge, is remember the wealth that he took from his father? Well, the wealth that he took from his father, his father says, bring me the fattest calf, one of the things that is worth the most on my land and kill it. I'm going to give something of incredible value to my son after he squandered everything I gave him. That's the kind of heavenly father you have that even when you come back to him, he still lavishes his grace on you. He still pours his love on you. There is no limits to God's love. I mean, he will always take you back and he will say, my child, I'm so glad you came to your senses. 
And I don't care about your rehearsed speech. I don't care about what you're saying. I'm, it is clear to me that your heart has you here. We're going to sing a, a song in a couple weeks. It's called Prodigal Me. It's an incredible song. And, and in the song, um, the, these words uh, talking about this younger brother, he says, I've followed my feet to nowhere. And now he's back. After he's followed his feet to nowhere, he has come back to be with the father, and the father just runs. I mean, picture this scene in a movie, right? I mean, why there hasn't been some short uh, film or something done on this, I think is crazy. This is an incredible, I mean, this is the pinnacle of the story. Quickly, he says, quickly, with great angst, he says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. His father, the only thing he is celebrating is that he's seen his son come home that's been gone. He's not concerned about what he's done. He's not concerned about where he's been. He's only concerned that he's at his house. And just so you know, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. God looks at you tonight and all he cares about is the fact that you want to come home. He doesn't dwell on your sin. While there might be consequences to what you've done, he just loves it when his kids come back to daddy. That's what he loves. That's the God we serve. That's the God we worship. And you get to have him as your heavenly father. And so many times people read this story and they love this part. And while this part is the pinnacle, they miss what happens starting in verse 25. Listen to this. Now his older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring um, what these things could be. And the servant said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. But his father came out and began pleading with him. And, and so I want to just remind you real quick, what is, who's in the crowd right now? And so what Mike talked about just now with the prodigal son uh, coming back, and for the first time in the crowd, there's uh, people who have been outcast from society, uh, lepers who have had to live literally outside of the city limits, miserable, suffering, thinking all the while God is angry at them, are now breathed hope that God loves them. He loves all of his children. And so then he, he finishes with this story that the older son, uh, go back, sorry. Um, and summoned one of the servants, your brother has come, your father has killed him. He became angry, not willing to go in. But here's the thing, the, the father's heart breaks for the prodigal. Jesus's heart breaks for those in the crowd who have never heard the hope that he's speaking to them. But it also breaks for the older brother, for the Pharisee, for the one who thinks that God's love for them is wrapped up in what they do because they have been good. 
and they don't understand that it is not because they have been good, but because the Father is good. That they are loved. That, that he says to them, I, 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 I love you. I love you, and it doesn't matter where you've been and what you've done, and it doesn't even matter if you leave tomorrow. You could run like your other brother, but I would love you, and I don't love you because you stayed. I love you because you're my son. Because you're my son. And that's it. And so God doesn't look um, at the, the homosexual with burning rage but with eyes full of grace and love, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He doesn't look at the one who struggles with pornography or struggles with whatever it is. His wrath, uh, though all of these things, the wages of these sins is death. His wrath poured on Jesus on the cross now looks with love and hope that they would find life. They would find something so much better. And so this older brother who proves that I stayed, uh, let's go to the next verse. This will make it clearer. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command that you've given me. Um, which, which would have been incredibly striking. This wasn't like, a, like, let's think, what is he talking about right now? The Pharisees in the crowd knew clearly that men who devoted their lives to serving him, devoted their life to serving him. And then the, the son that ran off in rebellion. I mean, it's clear, very clear. I've never neglected a commanding verse and you have never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours came, he has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this your brother was dead and has begun to live. He was lost. And now he is found. And so he comes to the older brother, who, if you think about it, it's unbelievably ridiculous. You've never given me a goat when, when half a mile away is a huge, huge party, like Mike just talks about, going on in celebration and feast. And so where is God's, or the father's heart would be that the brother would come and lovingly rejoice and embrace his brother and love that there is more than enough for all of us, for all of God's children to come home. He despises his brother, wishes him dead, shows no care, filled with anger, showing that he was serving his father, not out of love, but expectation. Expectation. And when this is robbed, or his idea that when the brother comes home, he should be outcast, put him as a servant, not taken as a son. He grows embittered towards his father. But the father doesn't leave him outside and say, oh, we're, we're in a party in by ourselves. He goes to him. I love that. 
because it's what Christ is doing in his story to the Pharisees, right? The, the ESV, if you read it, says he entreats them. And so he doesn't abandon the, the Pharisees, even in the story. He doesn't ride in and we neglected the older brother and uh, uh, this is only for the, the crippled outcasts. It's their time now. But he says, I love both. I want your heart. I don't want your hands. I don't want you to do a bunch of things that please me. I want you to act in love. I want you to know that I'm so much better and knowing that it would compel you to love. Compel you to love. I, I, I think C.S. Lewis in, in a book called Four Loves, he talks about um, just the allegory of uh, love between a man and a woman and what we see in that. Um, I think this is probably it, you know. The older crowd, maybe thing. Anyways, um, so what we see in that is it basically says, <laughs> it was, I was about to be like, he's been in love. And everyone's like, oh, sixth grade. Sorry. Okay, so um, what he says is that the allegory of love that we see um, is imprinted on our nature inside of us is a reflection of the love we're supposed to feel for God. So if I am in love or Mike is in love with his wife, he doesn't have to strive. Mike is, Mike is in love with his wife. And so in a that. A lot. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I was going to say something I would have gotten in trouble for. Okay, so um, I like in this. that. Keep talking. In that, Mike does not have trouble serving his wife. Sometimes I do. Okay. When you're acting in love, uh, he doesn't have trouble serving his wife. And so what Lewis says in that is that this is imprinted on our nature and should be the compelling way that you are meant to interact with God out of love. It's not difficult to do these things because I love my father. That's why I stayed. I didn't run. I didn't expect a goat. I love my dad. He's better than a goat. He's better than anything I could ever chase after. And I know that when I chase after things, it only leaves me starving, looking at the pods, a slave, a slave and not to life. And this is the story. I, I wish that I had the eloquence um, to convey it to you the way the Holy Spirit does or the way that men that are far better teachers. But it is the most compelling story ever told, most beautiful, most winsome, most central that God loves you tremendously and it has nothing to do with what you will do or what you've done. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed their transgressions. He does not repay them according to their iniquities. As a father shows love to his children, his steadfast love is as high as the heavens are above the earth for those who love him. This is the story that we're in. A God who out of love for all of his children came and died on a cross to redeem not just the religiously pious who think that their worth is found in what they have done, but also the one who thinks that God either could never love them or is currently angry at them that he loves his children. I, I was reading it earlier today, and it, uh, when you begin to meditate on it, it almost brings you 
I shouldn't even say that. It almost, go ahead, go ahead. It almost brings you, it'll bring tears. Yeah. Look, bro, I still work out, dog. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, you do. <laughs> it's not meant to be that. But it really will. When you begin to, to really comprehend, I told Bron this a couple weeks ago, that, that I, I'm, I'm just now getting to continue to wrestle with how much God loves you. He loves me based on nothing I've ever done, nothing I'll ever be. He loves me until the day I breathe my last breath. He will love you and he will love me and he will pursue you, wishing that none should perish. None should perish. And that love in which he predestined us, the love of Christ controls us, 2 Corinthians. And in that love, we are moved to love and able to serve, honor, love our Father so that when brothers come home, we rejoice with the angels that his children are coming back to him. I'm gonna pray and I think we went a couple minutes long and then Mike's got an announcement. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this night and I, um, God, I thank you that you're good. I thank you that you love. You're the epitome of um, all goodness and any goodness we've ever experienced is a reflection of you as the sun reflecting off a mirror is illuminated only by the power of the sun. I thank you, God. And I don't understand your love. I don't understand it. And you tell us it surpasses all understanding. So I pray that you would move in hearts tonight and that you would um, allow conversation to flow and that you would uh, press on us that we would be um, brought in new ways to new love for you. Forgive us and I thank you that you are not a proud God that when the prodigal comes home after wasting his life away thinking that is where life is found, you do not out of pride send him to be a servant but you run and embrace him. You lower your pride. And you embrace him and you love him and you bring him in and call him your son. What was lost is now found. What was dead is made alive. I pray that you would help us to remember that. It would compel us to love you. And I pray that in understanding and knowing your love for us, based on nothing we could ever do, we would be set free to love you more and to love others more and to tell them of this great God and King. You're infinitely greater than anything I could ever say. And I thank you. You saved me. And you saved my brothers and sisters in this room. Make us look more like your son. We're unworthy of you. It's by the blood of Jesus that we stand before you clean and in his name that we pray. All of these things, amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, if you um, don't have anything to do next Sunday afternoon, you do not want to miss uh, the party that's going to be had here at 3 o'clock. And um, don't start talking yet. I, I just need to tell you, it, you would be tempted, I think, tonight uh, to say, well, what are we going to talk about now? When we're doing this series, Prodigal Me, you've told us the story 
And what I want you to do is get excited about God's Word because God's Word is so rich that every time you read a story, you can pull a new truth out. And what we're going to do is exactly that over the next uh, few weeks. And so invite all your friends, and I mean that, okay? Invite all your friends. I think the story in this series is going to be really, really rich uh, for all of you. Um, thank you for being here. D-Town Forms are out on the bar. Y'all have an incredible week, uh, and we'll see you back here in two weeks at 7 o'clock and at the party next week.